A very good morning to you all. Hope you're all well. So, Romans. That's the book we're reading as a church for the month of February 2020. And it's the Apostle Paul's inspired letter to the local church in Rome in the first century. But even though this letter was written 2,000 years ago, it's the living word of God, isn't it? And it speaks to us today. And the book of Romans, it's such a clear gospel message, isn't it? It is God's good news telling us how we can be made right with him through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And we're also told of the many blessings that we have in the gospel, don't we? In the book of Romans. Now, there are some incredible verses in Romans chapter 6 describing the blessings that we have now in the gospel. And Romans chapter 6 is so deep and so powerful and so dramatic. And Romans chapter 6 seems to say that the believer doesn't have to sin anymore. How dramatic is that? How powerful is that? And how wonderful is that? Does Romans chapter 6 say, believer, you don't have to sin anymore because of the gospel? Let's just have a look at a couple of verses in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 verse 2 says this, we are those who have died to sin. And what do we read in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7? For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And then verse 14, what do we read there? Sin shall no longer be your master. What do you make of those verses in Romans chapter 6? They seem to be clearly saying, believer, you don't have to sin anymore. And Jesus has saved us from the punishment of sin. We all believe that, don't we? But Jesus has also saved us now from the power of sin. And one day, he will save us completely from the presence of sin. We've been saved from the punishment of sin, saved from the power of sin. And one day, we'll be set free completely from the presence of sin. Let me illustrate it this way. I want you to imagine a slave. Slavery is abhorrent, isn't it? So this slave is owned by a bad master. And this poor slave is being told by his bad master to do things that he doesn't want to do. And to do things that make him miserable and that harm him. How does this slave feel? Well, he wants to escape, doesn't he? He wants to be set free. But it's impossible for him to escape. But in the land where this slave lives and where the slave master lives, there's a king, a good king, a 
kind king, a wise king. And he wants to set this slave free. But he knows there's only one way to set him free. And that is to kill him. Not the slave master, but the slave. So the king turns up and he kills the slave. And he lies there dead. And then the slave master comes along and he starts giving instructions to his slave. Get up, do this, do that, do the other. What does the slave do? Well, he's dead. He can't do anything anymore to his old master. He is dead. The old slave master kicks him and says, come on, get up. Do the things that you always do for me. Do the things that you used to do to me all the time. The slave doesn't move. The slave is buried. And then what happens? You can guess. The king comes along and he raises the slave to life. And then the king tells the slave, I've set you free. Your old slave master, he's not your master anymore. I will be your master. Come home with me. I am good. I am kind. I know what's good for you. I know what's best for you. How does the slave feel? Well, he falls in love with his new master. He falls in love with the king. And he loves to please him. But then one day... The slave, who's got a new, good, kind master, he's in the shops, and who does he meet? He meets his old slave master. And the old slave master sees his old slave, and he says, what are you doing here? Come here. Come and do the things that you used to do for me all the time. Do this. Do that. Do the other. And what does the slave say? He's tempted to go back, but he says, no, I don't belong to you anymore. I died to you. I was raised by my new master. I've got a new master now who's good, who's kind, who's loving, who knows what's good and best for me. I don't have to listen to you anymore. I've been set free. And that's what we have to say to sin, isn't it? Sin, I don't have to obey you anymore. You are not my master. I've got a new master. I've died to you, sin, and I've been raised to life by my new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. I live for him now. I live to please him. That's why every day we should pray, Father in heaven, please lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from that evil one. Isn't it? Every day, throughout the day, When sin comes knocking on our door, we should remember the promise of James chapter 4 verse 7. What do we read there? James chapter 4 verse 7. Isn't this a wonderful promise? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When sin comes knocking on our door, wanting us to do the things that we used to do, when he says, You belong to me. I am your master. We should resist him and say, no. Resist the devil in the mighty name of Jesus and he will flee from us. So the believer doesn't have to sin anymore. 
But what comes after Romans chapter 6? Romans chapter 7. And we all know what's written in Romans chapter 7. So we're thinking, okay, so the believer doesn't have to sin anymore. So what on earth is going on in Romans chapter 7? What do we read in Romans 7 verse 19? This is the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to this local church in Rome. And what does he write? The great Apostle Paul who wrote Romans chapter 6. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. So what's that about? Paul, what on earth are you writing here in Romans chapter 7? Have you forgotten what you wrote in Romans chapter 6? Well, maybe this very imperfect illustration might help us. Think of a factory, and this factory has been taken over by new owners and new management. But it's the same workers in the factory and the same machines. Now, the old owners and the old management used to run the factory in a very bad way. They would give the workers very bad instructions. The old owners... The old management, they didn't care about health and safety. Oh, don't worry about safety glasses. Don't worry about safety boots and gloves or whatever. You know, just just get the job done. Just keep slamming out the products. And don't worry about quality. You don't have to measure the products. You don't have to test them. Just keep slamming them out. All we want is product, product, product. Don't worry about safety. Don't worry about quality. And the workers sometimes liked the instructions that the old owners and the old management used to give. Oh, yeah, I I love cutting corners. It's nice not to bother about safety. It's nice not to bother about quality. Uh, And I've got a bit of experience of this from working in factories and working in warehouses in my past. (laughs) But how would the workers feel? Well, they'd get harmed, wouldn't they? If they're not working in a safe environment, they get hurt, they get harmed, don't they? And when they produce bad products that get sent to people, they feel guilty, don't they? Oh, I feel really bad for that dodgy product I made. That's going to hurt someone else. But the workers then have new owners and new management. And they love the new owners, and they love the new management. But sometimes they find it hard to follow the instructions of the new owners and the new management. Because they remember the instructions of the old bad owners, the old bad management. Oh, do you know, it was easier following their instructions. It was easier sort of cutting corners, even though it does hurt us, even though it makes us feel guilty sometimes. And that is the position I believe the believer is in today. We have new owners. The believer has a new owner. Let's say God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. We are owned by them. And then the new management is the Holy Spirit, instructing us, leading us, and guiding us. 
But we don't always follow the instructions of the new management, do we, as believers? We don't always listen to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has told us everything that we need to know, and it's written in this book, this Spirit-inspired book. And what do we do as believers sometimes? We remember the instructions of the old owners, the old management. We remember the instructions of sin and the devil and the world, don't we? We remember the instructions of the old management. What does the old management tell us? They say, don't love God. Don't love other people. Don't love your neighbor. Be proud. Be bitter. Gossip. Criticize. Complain. Lust. Lose your temper. Be lazy. Don't forgive. Don't go to church. Don't pray. Don't read your Bible. Don't serve. Don't tell other people about Jesus. And we hear that voice constantly, don't we? Telling us to do the things really we don't want to do. We know that we shouldn't do. But the good news is chapter 8 is here to help us in our present position of sin. But when a believer doesn't do the good that they know that they should be doing, it's very tempting to ask the question, is God going to condemn me? Is God going to destroy me? And I'm sure most believers have been in that position. Maybe we've had a bad week, we've had a bad day, maybe a bad month or a bad year, and we thought, oh, I've done some really evil stuff lately. I haven't done good lately, the good that I know that I should do, the good that I want to do. I haven't done it. Is God going to condemn me? Is God going to destroy me? And Romans 8 is here to give us the resounding answer, no. There's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. What do we read in Romans 8? This is 1 to 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And they glorious promises. So when Jesus became flesh and blood, when Jesus became a member of the human race, those 2,000 years ago for 33 years, he lived the righteous, sinless, obedient life that we couldn't live. When Jesus lived that perfect life for 33 years, it's almost as if, well, it is as if we had lived the perfect life. The perfect life that Jesus lived is our life. And when Jesus was crucified, it was as if we were punished for our sins. So Jesus has done everything that we couldn't do 
live the righteous life. And Jesus has also taken the punishment for the wrong things we have done. And Jesus has also taken the punishment for the things that we should have done that we haven't done. Because we deserve to be punished for not doing things that we should do, shouldn't we? But Jesus has taken that punishment. And that is the good news of the gospel. So a believer is not condemned. But how can someone know if they are a true believer? And I think that is a very, very important question. So often, a believer will probably go through this stage in their Christian life. They'll ask, am I really a true believer? How can I know if I am a true believer? Well, Romans 8, verses 5 to 17, tell us what a true believer is. Let's begin with verses 5 to 12. What is a true believer? Romans 8, verses 5 to 13. What do we read there? Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So what is a true believer? A true believer has the Holy Spirit in them. That's what a true believer is. Someone who has the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead living in them. Isn't that wonderful? And the person who has the Holy Spirit living in them will produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Let us go back to our factory. Are you with me with a factory illustration? Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, sort of. Now, I want you to imagine that the old bad owners and the old bad management have opened a new factory. So you've got two factories run by good owners and good management, and then another factory run by bad owners and bad management. 
Now, the two factories look exactly the same on the outside. They look exactly the same. But when you examine the products they produce, there's a big difference. The factory that's run by bad owners and managed by bad management, the products are bad. And when you examine those products, you say, this factory is run by bad owners and managed by bad management. But then the factory that's run by good owners and managed by good management, when you check their products, you say, oh, this factory is owned by good owners and it's run by good management. And if we are true believers, we should be producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit and we should be doing good works. We are not saved by works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're not saved by works, but we're saved for works, aren't we? Which God prepared in advance for us to do. So works don't save us. The works is evidence that God's work of grace has taken place in us and that we have faith in Jesus. The evidence that we have faith in Christ is that we will do good works, that we will produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But when we do sin, because we do sin, don't we, every day, when we do sin, the true believer will repent, plead the blood of Jesus Christ, and ask for help. And that's a lesson I had to learn even working in a factory and working in a warehouse. Sometimes when I do mistakes working in the factory, do mistakes working in the warehouse, I try and cover it up. I said, oh, maybe the team leader won't find out if I do this. And then I'd start sweating, get into a stress, and I'd be running around like an idiot. Instead of just holding my hands up and saying, look, I've messed up you. I've had a bad day. Help. And that's what God wants us to do. Don't cover up your mess. Don't cover up your mistakes. Just hold your hands up and say, I've messed up you. And what does God do? He says, it's all right. I'll I'll sort out your mess. I'll clean up all this mess. I'll clean this up. You leave this to me. It's going to be painful for me to sort this out, but I'll do it. I'm going to clean this mess up. And I'm going to give you the manager, the Holy Spirit, to help you to help you. Christians, we are saved to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But you can have Christians who work hard purely just out of an unhealthy fear of God. So in the same way, you might have had some workers in this factory who produced good products just out of fear, purely out of fear for the management and the owners. They don't do it out of love or joy at all. They say, oh, I'm just fearful of the management and the owners. And sadly, sometimes you've got Christians saying, well, I've got to do this. I've got to read my Bible. I've got to pray. 
I've got to go to church. I've got to tell people about Jesus. I've got to serve. Just out of fear. They're sort of crippled by fear. And that is such a sad place to be in. Because you've just got a new slave master, haven't you? You've gone from one slave master to another slave master. And God is not a slave master, is he? God wants us to be sons, not slaves. Now, the true believer is also someone who has a loving, intimate family relationship with God. So the true believer is someone who has the Holy Spirit living in them, and they produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But a true believer is someone who has an intimate, loving family relationship with God. And we see that in Romans 8. This is 14 to 17, don't we? What do we read there? For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God, not slaves of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Isn't that wonderful? And if you're sitting here this morning thinking, I'm not sure if I've got that. Do you know, I, I don't think I can even pray. I hear people praying and they're saying, Father in heaven, I love you, I worship you, I praise you, I adore you. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness to me. Father, I love your presence and your intimacy with me. I think, I'm not sure if I've got that. I can't even call God Father. That's what the cults can't get their heads around. Jehovah's Witnesses, they can't pray Father in heaven. They say only a select few people have got that privilege. And I'm thinking, what have you got if you haven't got that? You're just a slave, aren't you? That's what they are, really, isn't it? They're just slaves. But if you're thinking, do you know, I'm not sure if I am a believer. I'm not sure if I've got that intimate relationship. It's all right. You can come into that relationship today, this morning. You won't be the first and you won't be the last professing Christian to say, do you know, I think I got it all wrong. No, have faith in Jesus Christ. Trust in him, his death and his resurrection. Repent and believe on him today. So we have so many blessings. We have so many current blessings in the gospel. We've seen that. And we have so many future blessings in the gospel. But we do also suffer in this life, don't we? And we can't escape that. So how do we cope with suffering in this life? Well, verse 18 tells us, doesn't it? What do we read there? Romans chapter 8, verse 18. How does the believer cope with suffering in this life here and now? The Holy Spirit says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's such a helpful verse, isn't it? Because we often have to go through something painful in order to enjoy the rewards, don't we? And you can all think of something painful or unpleasant or uncomfortable that you have to go through in order to enjoy the future rewards. 
And the cross is the greatest example, isn't it? How was Jesus able to endure the cross, the greatest suffering anyone has ever, ever gone through? What does it say in Hebrews? For the joy that was set before him. Jesus was able to endure the cross because he was looking forward to being with his Father in glory again. He was looking forward to being with you, to being with us, isn't it? His redeemed people. That was the joy that was set before him. And even childbirth, isn't it? Um, the next time we see Tom and Ellie, they will be with a child, God willing, isn't it? And I have to be careful what I say here, I suppose. <laughs> childbirth and labor isn't the most pleasant experience in the world, is it? But, but like Ellie and Tom are willing to go through this labor for the reward that will come, isn't it? They're not saying, oh, I can't be bothered for a baby. You know, oh, let's, let's stop. I don't want to go through the labor, the childbirth. He said, yeah, I'm willing to go through it. That's what's going to help me get through childbirth and labor. That moment when I will hold the child, isn't it? And you see it, don't, well, I, I, I've only been at two births. And after the child is born, all the discomfort of the labor is almost forgotten about, isn't it? The mother is like, ah, oh, she just smiles, isn't it? And there's a peace as she holds the child more often than not. I know there's some exceptions maybe, but that sometimes happens, isn't it? Ah, oh, all of that, it was worth it, isn't it? It was worth it. It was worth the wait, isn't it? They're waiting now, aren't they, Tom and Ellie? And when they hold the baby, they say, oh, it's worth the wait. It was worth the pain and the discomfort even. But we are going through labor now, aren't we, as a human race? How do we know that we're living in a world of sin and suffering? We're living in a world of sin and suffering now, aren't we? How do we know? Well, there's, there's three brief ways, aren't there? Verses 19 to 22 tell us that creation is groaning. Creation is even telling us we're living in a world of sin and suffering. What do we read in Romans 8, verses 19 to 22? For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. I think, what on earth does that mean? How on earth does creation groan? Well, all creation is suffering because of Adam's original sin. Be it so-called natural disasters, be it pollution, the cruelty that exists in the animal world between animals, because animals can be so cruel to each other, can't they? They sort of kill each other. 
and even the cruelties that other human beings inflict on animals. It all comes back to Adam's original sin. So when we do see the so-called natural disasters, when we see pollution, when we hear animals sort of groaning in pain, isn't it, as they're being killed, it should remind us, oh, that's creation groaning, isn't it? Almost creation is crying out, oh, come, Lord Jesus, come, isn't it? When are you going to put an end to all this suffering and pain and death? So the creation groans, but secondly, we groan, don't we, as human beings? We see that in verses 23 to 25. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. A line that um, we often use in our house if we're going through maybe a particularly stressful day or a stressful week or maybe an unpleasant time or something, a line that we've often used in our house, oh, I could really do with Jesus returning today. Have you ever sort of said that? Or maybe, maybe you're thinking that this morning. You're thinking of the week ahead and you're thinking, oh, I could really do with Jesus returning this week. <laughs> when I think what I've got ahead of me, the stress, the heartache, the disappointment. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. I was showing something to Hannah, and I said, oh, look at this. And I was like, oh. And Hannah said, yeah, that's the reaction. Oh, isn't it? Sometimes we don't even know what to say, isn't it? And we just groan and say, oh, not again. Oh, why? Or something, isn't it? We groan inwardly. So the creation groans, we groan, and thirdly, the Holy Spirit groans. We see that in verses 26 and 27, don't we? In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Have you ever been in the position where you just don't know what to pray? You're so heartbroken, maybe you're so disappointed, all you can say is, oh, Lord, oh. yeah, we've all been there, haven't we? We've all been there. Uh, I heard of a church in Swansea and one of the children of the church was tragically killed under horrific circumstances and there was a prayer meeting that night. A few people from the church gathered together in the prayer meeting. What on earth do you pray on a day like that? And the minister told me, nobody prayed. We just stood, we just sat there, and everyone was like, oh, oh, 
people just wept and groaned and said, Lord, oh. And you might think, is that praying? Yeah, that's real praying. I said, well, what did God make of that? All those groans. Well, by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was translating what the church were groaning to the Father. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit is saying, our Father, this is what they're going through. This is what they want to say, but they just can't find the words. This is what they want to say. They're just crying out for comfort. They're crying out for strength. They're crying out for justice. They're crying out for peace. That's what they're trying to say, but oh, they just can't. They're too weak to even pray. Sometimes we, the best prayer we can say is, oh, isn't it? Lord, help, isn't it? But even as we live in a world of sin and suffering, we have reasons to rejoice. And that's uh, my last point. Reasons to rejoice as we live in this world of sin and suffering. What is the first reason we have to rejoice as we live in this world of sin and suffering? Well, firstly, all things work together for our good. And we read that in verse 28. The first reason we have to rejoice as we live in this world of sin and suffering is that all things work together for our good. Romans 8 verse 28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Uh, Just before Christmas, I heard some disturbing news about uh, a minister who'd fallen into sin and who'd left his church and left his family. And when I heard this news from another minister, I was just sort of shell-shocked. And he could see, I said, well, this guy doesn't look very well at the moment from hearing this disturbing news. And then the minister had to sort of pass to me. He said, you've got to remember, even in this, God works all things together for good. All things. Not some things, all things. So even when the seemingly bad things happen, we have to say, God, work this together for the good. We can't see the beginning from the end. We can't see the big plan, the big picture, but we're trusting in you. You're going to work even this horrible news together for the good somehow. We always have to remember that, Romans 8 verse 28, when we hear bad news, think, well, this hasn't taken God by surprise. He's got a plan here. I don't understand it. I don't get it. But I'm going to trust in him for it. And secondly, why else should we rejoice as we live in this present world of sin and suffering? We're going to glory. If we've been justified, we're going to glory. What do we read in Romans 8, verse 29 to 30? For those God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. We're heading to glory if we've been justified, if we've been declared not guilty by God. And if we've been justified, 
then it means that we've been predestined. And if we were predestined, it means that we were called. Isn't that wonderful? It all works together. We live in this world of sin and suffering, but we can rejoice because we're going to glory. Now imagine if my father phoned me up and he said, I've got some good news for you. We would like to give you an inheritance. We'd like to give it to you now rather than when we die. And I've got a check here for you for a million pounds. Now my father isn't a millionaire. He says, you know, this isn't true. <laughs> so he said, I've got a check of a million pounds. All you have to do is come and get it. So I jump in the car and I make the two and a half hour journey to southwest Wales. And then a mile away from my parents' house, my car breaks down. How should I feel? Do I need to start complaining and getting angry and frustrated? I say, no, I'm only a mile away from a million pounds. I'll walk this mile. I'll actually skip <laughs> for this last mile, isn't it? I'm so happy. Could you imagine if I said, I can't believe my car's broken down. How am I going to pay for this now? I wouldn't be getting stressed and angry and would be sitting at the side of the road thinking, oh, I can't believe I have to walk one mile now to get to the million pounds. No, I'd be full of joy, wouldn't I? And we're marching to... Zion, aren't we? The beautiful city of God. And we should march joyfully, isn't it? Yeah, we're going to go over a few bumps on the way, aren't we? We say, oh no, we're heading to glory. That, that helps me to keep going. Yeah, suffering will happen on the way. Tragedies, heartbreaks, disappointments. But we keep our eyes fixed on glory, don't we? On the prize set before us. And another reason we have to rejoice as we live in this world of sin and suffering is um, that God is for us. God is for us. God is for us. And we see that in verse 31, don't we? What do we read there? What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't that wonderful? God is for us, and who can be against us? Maybe this week, when you stand up for what's right in the Bible, this week, when you stand up and you take a stand against what the Bible says is wrong, people are going to turn against you. Your family might turn against you. Your friends might turn against you. Your work colleagues might turn against you. Your neighbors might turn against you. When you take your stand saying, the Bible says that that's wrong. This is what the Bible says that's right. What do you do? What can help us to keep going? We can say, well, God is with me. Even if everyone have turned their backs on me, God is with me. He's standing with me on this matter. And then fourthly, what other reason do we have to rejoice as we live in this world of sin and suffering? God gives us everything we need for our present suffering. And we see that in verse 32. Romans 8, verse 32, my favorite verse in the Bible, I think, at the moment. Isn't it incredible? I don't know if anyone's read that this month yet, but Romans 8, 32 is like, oh, it is glory, isn't it? Romans 8, verse 32. 
He, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Now, I've got no doubt that God has dealt with the biggest problem in my life. The biggest problem in my life is my sin. And I believe that God has dealt with that by sending his son to take the punishment from my past, present, and future sins. I've got total confidence in that. God, you've dealt with the biggest problem in my life. But then when little problems come, if I'm honest, I'm not so confident in God. If maybe, I don't know, finances get a bit tight or the future seems a bit uncertain or if there's ill health in the family, I'm not as confident then. But I should remember that verse, isn't it? Romans 8 verse 32. It's almost as if God is telling me, Dav, if I dealt with that gigantian problem of your sin, those little problems you're stressing about now, that's really a piece of cake for me. There's plenty of grace for you to deal with that. Plenty of peace from me for you to deal with that. I can give you grace for that difficulty. I can give you peace for that trouble. I've dealt with your sin. And you're worried about that silly little thing. Oh, there's loads of grace. Loads of peace. Don't worry about that. That's what we have to remember when we think about what happened on the cross. Everything else. Everything else is easy, so to speak. And then, fifthly, we have reasons to rejoice as we live in this life of sin and suffering. We are not condemned. And we see that in verses 33 and 34, isn't it? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. <laughs> I love that. No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. We have reasons to rejoice as believers as we go through this life of sin and suffering because we're not going to be condemned. We're not going to hell. Now, um, I'm sure my wife won't mind me saying this, but the line that I always use is, Han, things could be so much worse. And she's like, I know that. <laughs> I know things could be so much worse. Things could be so much better as well. But I think it, I know it's irritating for some people when you say, oh, things could be worse. Oh, but they could, they could so much be worse. What is the worst thing that could happen to you, me, anyone in the world? Spending eternity in the lake of sulfur. Spending eternity in that outer darkness. In that place of God's wrath. Separated from God for all eternity. And sometimes we need to remember that, don't we? When we do go through sin and suffering. When we go through suffering in this life, again, things could be worse. I could be spending eternity in hell where I deserve to be. That's where I deserve to be. 
but I'm not. Things could be so, so much worse. Our present sufferings are nothing compared to hell. Nothing. And then sixthly and lastly, the last reason we have to rejoice from this passage as we go through this life of sin and suffering, God loves us in Christ. And nothing can separate us from his love. Isn't that wonderful? That's what we read in verses 35 to 39, isn't it? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or farming or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Even if everyone hates you, even if everyone turns their back on you, Jesus loves you, and nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? It's been Valentine's this week, isn't it? Yeah, (laughs) you're all like, has it? <laughs> and people might have wrote to each other, I will love you forever. Now, I'd like to think that I will love my wife and my children all the days of my life on this earth. And I'd like to think that my wife and my children will love me all the days of my life on this earth. There's no guarantee, is there? Even your spouse, even your own children could stop loving you. Couldn't they? It's not impossible. The people dearest to us, one day, for whatever reason, could stop loving us. And it is such a heartbreaking thought, isn't it? But Jesus will never have a bad day, will he? He'll never stop loving us. So, do you know, we just fell out of love. Gee, that's what some married couples say, isn't it? We just fell out of love. We just stopped loving each other. Could you imagine if Jesus said that one day? Oh, that David Taylor. Yeah, I, I knew I, I saved him in 1994, but in, what are we? In 2020, I just, we just fell out of love. I just stopped loving him. No, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? 